As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. If you're looking at investing in a new asset class, get with someone who is an expert in that not a dabbler. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure. Free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name. Episode 565 titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now, I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely wound up being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Joel Owens. How you doing, Joel? Pretty good. Nice to have you on the show. I saw you present at a conference. Jay Martin has a conference in San Francisco, and I went to that. We both spoke. Let's see. This was August of 2016. We didn't have a chance to meet in person, but I was really impressed with your panel and discussion that you were leading and it was around retail properties. And that's what we're going to focus on a little bit about Joel. He is a principal commercial 
real estate broker at All World Realty. He's a developer and investor. His current clients have a net worth of one to one hundred million dollars. He hosts a video blog called Commercial Straight Talk, and his specialty is in retail properties. That's what we're going to focus on. And he is based in Atlanta, Georgia for all of our Georgia Best Ever listeners. With that being said, Joel, you want to give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I've been in the business about 14 years. How I got started was a friend of mine had an old laundry that they inherited from their mom and a commercial real estate developer approached them to buy their laundromat that was built in the 50s. And I uh, did the contract for him, reviewed the contract, met the developer, and usually people might catch only two or three outs in the contract, and I caught every single out in the contract, and the developer called me and wanted me to come on and work with them on assembling the rest of the parcels there. There was about 20 parcels on 25 acres. It was a 650,000 square feet mixed-use retail development, after build value of $150 million, and I spent about two and a half years working on assembling those land pieces. After that, the economy went down around 2008, and it was cheaper to buy existing than it was to build. So a lot of the land development stopped. I moved to single-tenant at least properties, such as the Walgreens, AutoZone, et cetera. I was at the bottom of the cycle. Then I eventually moved more onto the retail strip centers. A combination of, they, they vary across the spectrum for most passive to you have to be more involved. So on the low end, you might have, where it's very passive, you might have T-Mobile, Starbucks, Aspen Dental, um, 10-year primary term leases backed by thousands of locations, 2% annual rent increases. You have the property manager in place. You might look at a report once a month, set it and forget it. And across the spectrum, as the cap rate rises, you might have a mixed retail center that has some mom-and-pop tenants or regional, maybe one national. And then on the opposite spectrum, you might have all mom-and-pop tenants in the center and the cap rates higher but you have to be more careful in your evaluation of those tenants because as so many of them go out or roll out the actual return could be less than if you had bought the national tenant at a lower cap rate but they're not going out you're not having to spend money on leasing commissions with a tenant rep broker or tenant improvement costs to get another tenant into that space do the mom and pop retail strip centers have the same structure of leases that you'll find with the more, what is the term for the T-Mobiles or the Walgreens of the world? They're national tenants backed by parent corporate guarantees on the leases. So as far as the structure of the leases, you have what's called typically my five levels. So you can take something, for instance, a Taco Bell tenant owned by Young Brands, which also owns Pizza Hut. If you had a lease guarantee by... Yum Brands itself, over tens of thousands of locations, it's backing that one location. So even if it makes money, loses money, if they sign a 10-year lease, they're going to keep paying the rent like clockwork to protect their credit rating and their borrowing costs and things like that. The next level down would be at the city area of Yum Brands where maybe only 10 states that have Taco Bells in them for 500 Taco Bell stores are guaranteeing the lease. Next level below that would be a large franchisee and maybe owns 150 Taco Bells and has been a strong operator for 15, 20 years. And then below that would be a small franchisee uh, for the guarantee on the lease that maybe only owns one or two locations. And then below that would be not even a Taco Bell concept. It would be Joe's Tacos. It doesn't have an operating manual, training manual, franchise support, advertising, anything. It's just 
someone opening up their own small business, trying to grow an individual brand. So across the spectrum, that's the level of lease guarantee. And then on the centers themselves, you generally have a triple net lease. Sometimes you'll have a gross lease, which can be okay. If it's a brand new center, you might actually come out better with a gross lease because if you can control your costs more, your net rent that you would get might be higher than an absolute triple net lease. But if you have a center that's getting older, 5, 10, 12 years, you're going to start having costs with the roof and the parking lot and everything else as part of your overall common area maintenance expenses that the tenants pay you for above their base rent, then you want that triple net lease in place. Because if it was gross lease and they're just paying you that rent, then you, the landlord, are paying for the parking lot and the roof and all these things that can get very expensive, it can take your overall yield down. So when we look at mom and pop tenants, we look at them a lot more intensively than national tenants. We look for their total liquidity and net worth. We look at the financials. If the lease requires them to disclose ongoing sales and financials, to look at their health ratios with the business because different businesses have different overall health ratios. For instance, if you take a restaurant, we usually don't want to see more than a 10% rent to sales ratio. So if they're paying 100000 in rent, we want to see the sales at least a million dollars a year or higher for that particular tenant. If they're going into the 12, 13, 14% rent to sell ratio, then likely they're either going to leave the space or they're going to commit you for some kind of rent reduction because they're not making enough money after they add in their food and labor cost to sustain that business. And that's the rent to sales ratio. It's monthly rent to monthly sales? Yeah, so generally as a barometer you take, because rent goes up every year generally on these triple net leases, they'll usually go up a percentage, maybe two, three percent a year. You look at their overall annual sales compared to what they're paying in base rent. So if their base rent was 100000 a year, you would want to see at least a million dollars in sales to be at that 10% ratio. If they're down in the 6 or 7% ratio, then they're generally crushing it and they're very healthy as far as the food establishment goes. If they're above that level, then they're in trouble. The other thing that you have to watch out for is sometimes when the developers build out these centers, they'll pay a lot of upfront tenant improvement costs on behalf of the tenant. So they might give them a $60,000 tenant improvement credit. And if market rent is 25 a foot, they sign them on a lease of $29 a foot, $4 a square foot above market. And then they're hoping over that 10-year time of the primary lease term that the market rent with increases, it will catch up to become the new market rent. So what they're paying, it'll catch up with that amount. So it'll be in 25 market, it'll be 30 bucks, and then they're paying 30 bucks. The problem is when you buy a property, that tenant doesn't last and the market rent is 25 and, and they've got 29 or 30 on their lease. And then they go out and you have to release it again in the market a year later. You're not going to get that 30 bucks a foot that they had that you paid an eight cap for. Instead, you're really now having a 7.2 cap on that center once that goes away. So you have to measure that tenant has a liquidity of a million bucks or a million and a half bucks. Even if the business isn't making that much money or it's kind of teetering on the edge of that health ratio, they're going to stay around for maybe two or three years and be able to float that business versus if they're way undercapitalized and it has to make a profit within four or five months and you spend all these tenant improvement credits, then you could have to backfill that space right away within a year's time period. All that eats into your returns. Even if you sign someone immediately right away for that space, they do the letter of intent for the tenant and then it has to go to the lease execution with the commercial attorneys. 
and then any tenant improvement build out, and then they have to take certificate of occupancy that tenant does for that space. And generally, there's maybe one or two months of free rent as they're opening the business and getting it going. So there could be a four-month time period there where you're not getting income on that particular unit. But the way most of my deals go, I generally deal with ultra-high net worth investors. And so if we're buying a $4 million center and they're putting a million down, typically the break-even occupancy after 25% down is about 68%. So if you had a 10-tenant center, and it was full, you have to lose three of those tenants to be almost at a break-even point with paying the mortgage each month versus a single-tenant net lease property. If you own an auto zone and the auto zone goes out until you get another tenant in, you're paying that mortgage every month. You're not bringing in anything to be able to service that at all like you are with a multi-tenant retail center. Our multifamily and single-family investors are seeing a parallel. Well, on the single-family residential, I get some clients that want to come in and want to make that transition from residential to commercial. They've been dealing with residential tenants for a while, and they just don't want to deal with it anymore, and they want to move into the commercial space. The one thing is if someone bought a couple of houses and they doubled or tripled in value or small multifamily buildings, one of the things is that two or two and a half million and under range is hyper-competitive because there's a bigger pool of buyers. Uh, where they're trying to transition from residential to commercial. And typically the cap rates are more compressed but just because of the buyer demand and the loan rates that you can get are not as good because it's a smaller loan balance in the commercial space. So typically if you can be in that kind of 3 to $15 million range, that's kind of the sweet spot that I do with a lot of my clients because anything about $15 million, you get the REITs, insurance companies, pension funds, they want to buy the bigger stuff, and they tend to get special financing that even a group of investors going in together couldn't get for rate and term because of their track record. So generally, it's not competitive to buy those types of properties. And then under $3 million, it's hyper-competitive, whereas if you're buying a 5 or $6 million property with a larger loan, you might get a 20 or 25 basis point reduction on the interest rate. And then on the cap rate, instead of buying at a 72 in the $3 million range and the $5 million range because there's less buyers that can afford that, you might be able to get like an 8 cap or 8.1 cap. So by being 25 basis points reduction on the interest rate and getting another 60 or 70 basis points on the cap rate by going to larger property, you've got about 100 basis points of additional return there. I want to ask a clarification question about annual rent annual sales ratio. You said 10% or lower is good for, I believe you said food establishment. Is it only for food establishment or can you use that ratio for any type of tenant? There's actually different tenants have different costs associated with their particular type of business. So the ratio varies. There's a book. I belong to the International Council of Shopping Centers. So for retail, that's a specialty organization that's been around since the 1950s. There's over 70,000 members worldwide, and it only focuses on the retail sector. And they have a book that breaks down those ratios by the type of business, mm. what, what ratios you look for. On Amazon? I don't know if you can buy it on Amazon. I know there's a specific place for ICSC, and they have different offices, and I believe the one in New York or Washington has it. I can look it up in my notes and give it to you as a link for people if they're interested in it. 
where they can buy that book. Yeah, that will be helpful. Or, you know, what would we Google? Let's just do that because as much as I'd like to promise I can put that in the notes afterwards with the daily podcast, I'm not sure if if I'll be able to. So what should they Google? And if they're really curious, they can reach out to you or something. I'm trying to remember the name of it offhand. I think it's a cost and sales use report, ICSC. So put in maybe ICSC, cost and use sales report, something like that. And that's IC as in CAT, SC as in CAT. Yes, it's International Council of Shopping Centers. Cool. I think we will be resourceful and we'll be able to figure that out through a Google search. Thank you for sharing that. The 3 to $15 million range is a sweet spot. What knowledge should an investor have before getting into retail? Well, there's a lot of talk lately about online sales and taking away from brick and mortar and that kind of stuff. But if you're in it every day, you have a much clearer view of the overall picture. So I've known, for instance, for over the last four or five years that big box retail is eventually downsizing and changing the landscape of retail for a while. So if I have a high net worth client worth $20 million, I'm not telling them to go out and buy a single tenant Best Buy or Kohl's or something like that because bigger spaces take longer times to fill. You could be a year or two years filling a big space like that because if you have a 100,000 square foot space, there's not as many tenants that can fill that space versus you got a small strip center and you've got a 2,000 square foot space that opens up. There's thousands of tenants for that space. And so typically the companies where it makes sense for them to buy something like that is like a big REIT where they might own 50 Best Buys. One or two out of the portfolio goes dark for a while. They can still remain positive on their cash flow versus a ultra high net worth investor that owns some big property and it goes dark and they have to keep paying that huge mortgage. That could hurt them a lot more. So I typically tell my clients to stay away from that. In regards to online sales, you're only about, things up about 2% a year, but they're only about 8 to 10%. Right now, of the overall retail sales are online, and of that growth, about 6% of those are existing brick-and-mortar businesses that are just expanding their online Internet presence. It's not like you have this huge wave of online-only companies opening up over the Internet and taking away sales from brick-and-mortar. Most of the brick-and-mortar that's suffering is Office Max, Staples, the office supply industry, the clothing industry is oversaturated right now. People will go in somewhere and they'll try the clothing on or look at it and touch it, and they'll go on their phone and try to get it cheaper on Amazon. Actually, the online is not supposed to grow as big with individual small companies because it's like 35 states right now have legislation where they're going to start charging sales tax for companies that even sell one product in one state, even if they're not based in that state. And Amazon's actually excited about that because they're already paying sales tax in all the states. So that'll take away the competitive advantage some of these smaller companies have to try to compete with Amazon where they're not charging the consumer sales tax. So what I focus on and what I tell my clients to focus on is destination-type tenants. When we look at a strip center, which is what a lot of my clients buy, we're looking for restaurants, doctor's office, veterinary office, workout gym, a nail salon, hair salon, environmentally friendly, dry cleaners. These are places where the consumer has to go and spend cash and pay your tenants to where they can pay the landlord rent. It's not like a clothing store. 
or an antique shop or a hobby store where they can just go look around and they can buy it cheaper online and your business has suffered. So we focus on mainly the destination type tenants. Smart. Makes a lot of sense. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? If you're looking at investing in a new asset class, get with someone who is an expert in that, not a dabbler. Some of the mistakes that I've seen is people will use a general practice attorney for commercial real estate or they'll try to use a basic form instead of paying 10000 for legal costs, but it ends up costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars down the line. And so when you're looking at buying these properties, you really want a specialist. For instance, all I do every day, I look over a thousand properties a week, flyers and offering memorandums, and we screen properties all over the country. My database I built up over 14 years has thousands and thousands of contacts for properties from other retail brokerages to retail property management companies to developers to individual groups and owners all across the country. Some states alone, I have 280 different companies in one state. And so I'm able to usually source and look for the best properties. So for someone that's new that's looking at retail, they might be looking at two items that they think might be a concern, whereas I'm looking at 100 different items with the property. And I'm looking for my clients with that before I actually give it to them, only like maybe 15% of the stuff I see for various reasons. So you're looking at traffic counts of the road. Is it on the going home side or going away side? What are the sight lines of the property? Is it down in a hole or up on a hill where you can't see it? Is there a meeting in the road where it's hard for consumers to turn in? Is the construction, the road fixed to be widened from two to four lanes and access to the property is going to be hard for the next year, year and a half? Is it going to your tenants are all the leases coming due at the same time or are they staggered is the rent going up each year or is it blocked rent Blocked rent is where it goes up maybe 10 percent, but it goes up every five years so starbucks will have 10-year primary term lease and it'll go up 10 percent every five years which is okay for starbucks if it's a franchisee type tenant if it goes up 10 percent in year five they go out of business in year three or year four you've had flat rent for those three or four years. So that type of tenant, you want to get the rental increase every single year out of them. So if they go out early, you extracted the most rent out of the property. And then you look at if there's gross lease or if it's triple net, and the leases, I look for any early termination, language clauses. There's just a lot of things. These assets are mainly passive, but the process of buying them and getting financing for them and looking for all the potential problems with them you're looking at a three-month process. But once you get it set and you get your management in place, it's pretty passive after that. But leading up to it, you're going to have to put some work in. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes, 
listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at beforethemillions.com. That's beforethemillions.com. All right, Joel, what's the best ever book you've read? Best ever book, specifically for retail investing, there's a guy called Gary Rappaport, R-A-P-P-A-P-O-R-T, and it's on retail investing and syndication partnerships. Best ever deal you've done? As far as from the brokering side, the client that contacted me with a bigger pockets a couple of years ago, and he's one of my hiring clients, and he bought two phases of properties for about $22 million, and I made about 410000 in commission off of that one. Best ever way you like to give back? I'm a moderator on Bigger Pockets. I've known Josh since he started the site a long time ago. We've got over 730,000 members now, and I've got about 12,000 posts on there, and I usually go in there once a day, and I don't have time to help everybody individually because I'm working with my clients and my own investment and development deals for myself. But I can put something on there, and then it can stay on there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and thousands and thousands of people can read it. So I'll usually try to answer questions or put information on there that people find useful. And what's a mistake you've made on a deal, either investing or brokerage side? There was one deal one time. It was a multifamily building that I bought. It's around 20 units, and it was an owner finance deal. And it was a lot of years ago, and I thought the it was showing that the tenants were all paying, but the owner actually took a home equity line of credit out of the personal property, and they were putting that into the units. So only two were supposed to be vacant. 18 were supposed to be occupied. You look through the business bank statements, and it was showing that 18 of them were paying, but found out that post-closing, half that money was coming from the home equity line of credit. They were taking that and putting it in like they were collecting those rents from those mm-hmm. tenants, which is actual, it's considered fraudulent, but an attorney basically told me that basically I could take them to court and we can spend a year, year and a half of my life on it, even if I win and, and collected a judgment or something, I'm going to have to chase them for the money, so... I lost about 15000 on that and spent a lot of my time, effort, and energy on it. But it was a good learning experience, and I just learned from that that the residential space, I dealing with those types of tenants every day. It's just not my cup of tea. I just like retail, national tenants, five five thousand of stores. It's more passive. I can be traveling. I can do whatever, and I'm not worried about bigger headache and the residential landlord laws being changed more in favor of the tenants. You get into business landlord law, it's a lot more favorable to the landlord. Really quick, what would you do differently if you were presented another deal like that? How would you determine that they are using a line of credit? I've thought about that. I'm trying to figure out if someone's doing something fraudulent. I think I should have looked at the records more. It was many years ago, I was just getting started, and you get excited when someone's wanting to own or finance something. And so I should have looked at the purchase price I was paying more, and I should have conducted more tenant interviews, and I should have looked at the files that they presented with the leases and really saw what wasn't there that should have been there as far as a file on the tenant and the income levels and everything else to spot more red flags. But at that time, I wasn't as seasoned an investor. And so it goes back to, again, if I had had someone looking at that asset for me that had that deeper level of experience, Maybe I would have never got into that property in the first place. 
because they would have known to look for things that I didn't know to look for at that time. So it's the same principle with retail. Someone's wanting to buy something. They need to use somebody or go through someone that has that level of experience to see the hundred things versus the three things they might be looking at. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you, Joel? My website is awcommercial.com. There's a form on there they can fill out to get in touch with me. They can also email me at Joel Owens, J-O-E-L-O-W-E-N-S at Comcast.net. And then they can always call me at 678-779-2798. The only thing I ask of investors when they're looking at investing in retail properties, a typical process is they get in touch with me. I send them a one-page Excel form for their liquidity and net worth statement to show they have capability to purchase and they're a serious purchaser. Then we'll get on the phone call, kind of like we're on now, where I'll go over their individual needs and the type of return they're looking for, if they want stabilized property or if they want value-add retail where they can increase their returns. And then we'll kind of set a direction for what they want to do. And I only work with clients one-on-one. That's just what I do now just because of the, the time that I have. I have to allocate only to clients that are working one-on-one with me. So I just work with people one-on-one. I don't do anything where they're trying to work with 10 or 20 brokers at a time and all that kind of stuff. I just don't have time for all that. Well, Joel, this was educational as I thought it would be and learning all about retail strip centers, the five levels of lease guarantees for retail properties, the lease guarantee by in using Yum Brands as an example, Yum Brand backed by thousands of locations is one. The subsidiary of a Yum Brand would be the second level. A large franchisee who has hundreds of stores would be the third. A small franchisee, four. And then you affectionately called it Joe's Tacos, number five. <laughs> and those different levels have different risks associated to them. And holy cow, a bunch of other stuff that you talked about. The annual rent to annual sales ratio, 10% or lower, is good for food establishments. And you gave us some other resources on the show. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Really enjoyed our conversation. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at beforethemillions.com. That's beforethemillions.com.